Uh, good morning. Picking up again, uh, Matthew 12, but we'll start with a word of prayer. Lord God, our Heavenly Father, again we come before you and before your Son, seeking to know him, that we might make him known in our own lives and in this world. We pray, Heavenly Father, then, for insight and understanding into the words of your Son, and we believe that it is your will, and we ask according to your will, that we might understand your Son and his ways and his wish, and that we might have your special strengthening to live according to that which we see in him. For his sake. Amen. I'd just like to pick up uh, from 32, Matthew 12 from 32, where we left off uh, last time. Whosoever speaks a word against the Son of Man, it shall be forgiven him, but whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit, it shall not be forgiven him. Now, I think we need to remember what is the purpose of the Gospel records and how did they, how did they arise. Well, when you read the Gospel according to Matthew, I would suggest that this is an inspired, by inspiration, uh, this is an inspired transcript of the Gospel, the message that Matthew usually preached. And he starts, as probably we would, with Jesus being the, the seed or the son of Abraham and David. He goes right through, concludes with the death and resurrection of the Lord, and an appeal for, for baptism, uh, right, at the end of the, uh, right at the end of the Gospels. Now, that is, is the pattern in, in Mark and Luke as well. And so, I think we're reading here the transcript of how the Gospel was preached. This is what uh, Matthew and his group of followers normally preached, and as time went on, it was written down under inspiration. And also, it would have become a missionary document. It would have been spread around in order to, to spread the gospel to others, and it would have become the, the manual, the, the handbook, of those early communities who heard this message and were baptized on that basis. So the gospel is in the gospels, strangely enough. And the rest is, uh, is interpretation and addition, as it were, to, to that. So then, uh, but when we read here about blaspheming the Son of Man and it being forgiven, remember that that is in the context of that early community in the first century, who were, as has happened at other times in the history of the Lord's people, were being pressured to just say a few words in blasphemy against Jesus uh, so that the Romans wouldn't kill them. And those who refused to blaspheme Jesus, to call Jesus accursed, uh, anathema or whatever, uh, were, were killed, and those who just made this sort of uh, betrayal of Jesus in a few words were, were sort of okay. And I think that the Lord is very gracious here, and the record has been uh, tailored, I would say, under inspiration to give comfort to those who had maybe failed in that. And the Lord is saying, if you speak a few words against me, I'll forgive you. And that, I think, is why all the Gospel records give this huge emphasis to the betrayal of Jesus by Peter when he denies the Lord in those few words, that this was exactly the situation that was going on with the persecuted believers in the first century, and some gave in. And, of course, the point is that the leader of the early church had done the same. But the Lord says, blasphemy or speaking words against, it's in parallel there, isn't it, to uh, speak words against the Son of Man, to blaspheme the Holy Spirit, to speak words against the Holy Spirit is not forgivable. And in the context here, the Lord's been doing miracles that were clearly by the Holy Spirit, and they were saying, this is from Satan, this is not from God, 
They didn't want to believe in the, in the light of all the evidence that was in front of them. And the Lord is saying, well, look, if the evidence is put in front of you and you choose not to believe it and you go on living in that way of life, then, of course, you won't be forgiven because you don't, you don't want to be, do you? In that context, he says, 33, either make the tree good and his fruit good, or else make the tree corrupt and his fruit corrupt, for the tree is known by his fruit. He's saying, look, I'm a tree, and the fruit on me is my my works, my miracles, are my teaching, my words. There's a number of proverbs that talk about the, the fruit of the lips of a person is like the fruit of a tree. And so I think he's saying that Make in your own mind, uh, decide in your own mind, uh, for me one way or the other. I am either good or I am corrupt. And in the end, this is what it comes down to, that confronted by the Lord Jesus, you do have that radical choice to either accept him as good as the Son of God, etc., or actually there is no sort of ambivalent position Actually, if you don't accept that, then you are you have to say that he's a fraud and all his words are just lies and uh, the good works that he did were not really good works that proved him to be the Son of God. They, they therefore are evil. Now, that is the confrontation that we have in Jesus and we are all confronted by that same Jesus that they were confronted by in the first century, just that he comes to us out of the words of, of the Gospels in front of us, out of this black print on white paper, we have a word made flesh. We have a person that confronts us. He says, 34, you generation of vipers, that's Genesis 3.15, is it not? Scribble that in your margin. How can you, being evil, speak good things? He doesn't mean it is impossible for you to speak any good thing. I think he's connecting with the, uh, the good tree. And he's saying that uh, you're never going to be able to accept me as good because you are evil within. And he's saying that unless you change your internal attitudes, you will not be able to speak good things. And he goes on uh, here to talk in more general terms about about speaking uh, and speech and, and language and the importance of the tongue But he does it in this context that you cannot uh, recognize and speak good things about me because you're rotten inside. And when he says you can't speak good things, um, and uh, goes on in 35 about how the heart brings forth good things, that could be the equivalent of a Hebrew intensive plural. There is in or the Semitic languages, this idea of using a plural in order to talk about one great thing. In some of the uh, descriptions of the blood uh, of Messiah in the Old Testament, you read bloods. Now, bloods can't be plural, but the point is the great blood, the significant blood. And so the good things could, in uh, sort of Semitic, Aramaic, uh, Hebrew sort of thinking, could refer to the one great good thing, the one good word. And what was that? I think this is the word of confession, uh, of faith in Jesus, that was to be made at baptism. You think of Romans 10, 9 and 10. If you shall confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord, 
then you shall be saved. And with the mouth, confession is made to salvation. It's all rather similar language here. He could be saying, you will never come to make that uh, baptismal confession of faith in me because you are corrupt inside you. He says, 34 there, because out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. And the abundance, the Greek really word, means that which remains, that which is sort of superfluous, that which is left over. And it could be that what he's saying is that, look, the mind is caught up to some degree with just living and with all the normal things of life. Uh, but what is beyond that is what God is particularly looking for. It's the abundance of the mind that he's looking at. And sometimes when we worry about not being spiritually minded enough, and and worry we should, because I'm sure all of us like me uh, are tired really of our slowness of progress towards spiritual mindedness, towards having a heart and mind that is thinking, churning over spiritual things, and you think, well, I can't do it all the time because I've got to get on with, you know, your job with all sorts of things. Um, your, your mind is taken up with, with you know, life. And he's talking here about the abundance of the heart, that which is over and above all that other stuff. He says that the good man, verse 35, uh, out of the good treasure of the heart brings forth good things. Now, he's been talking about himself as the good tree. And yet now he he sort of goes on beyond that and says, look, this is all of you. Just as I, Jesus, have a good inside and my works that I'm doing are good works and not corrupt works and not from Satan or whatever you think. So he's saying, look, I am not like an icon that's separate from you. What is true of me is to be true of you. Of course, because he had our nature. He was our representative. He was not, you know, God himself. He was not a puppet. He wasn't a comet that came out of space and hit this earth for 33 years. He was one of our boys. He had our nature and was in that sense our representative. And all that is true of him becomes true of us. And he says the good man out of the good treasure, the good wealth of his heart, brings forth these good things. Now, the real wealth of a person is their thinking. Now that is a radical idea in this money-crazy, material-crazy society in which we live, that your real treasure, your real wealth is in here, it's in your head, it's in your heart, it's where your heart really is. And that is what, as Peter says uh, about spiritually thinking women, is in the sight of God of great price, of great treasure, of great value. And if we take away nothing else from this talk, your greatest wealth is what you think about and is your heart. And that's a great comfort if you feel that you haven't made the scale, made it too far up the scale of material uh, achievement, or even if you have. It's extremely relevant to all of us that your real wealth is not all that stuff, it is your heart. It's where your mind is when you wake up in the morning, when you wake up in the middle of the night, what you think about subconsciously, that's your real wealth. And this is the whole point of studying the scriptures, of having God's word and the word of Jesus circulating in our minds, because that is the real wealth. So he says it's an evil man, 35, who will bring forth evil things. And I think that he's saying, look, 
if the works that I'm doing are actually from Satan, well then, that's because I have an evil mind. So you see they're forced, aren't they, to either accept him as who he claimed to be, or to actually not just shrug their shoulders and say, oh, I don't know. No, it wasn't like that. You couldn't be ambivalent. You couldn't claim there's not enough evidence to make a decision. There is ample evidence. And if you decide he's not the real thing, then you're saying that he's pretty evil. Or well, you'd be pretty evil if you weren't any of the things Jesus said he was and, and said and claimed all the things he did. Every idle word, 36, that men shall speak, they shall give account thereof in the day of judgment. And you marvel at the Lord's masterful way here. Of course, his real point is, you guys saying that this miracle, these miracles I'm doing are actually from Satan, you're going to answer for that. And those words you said about that, you're going to answer in the day of judgment. But he flanges out wider here and says that every idle word shall be, that men shall speak, will have to be accounted for. So he's uh, going beyond that. Now, I said that the Gospel records were the handbook of the early church, and that's why when you read Paul's letters, I've estimated that at least once every three verses, and that's just what I can discern, he is alluding to the, uh, the Gospel records. And if you look at my book on Paul, you'll see that there are a whole huge long list uh, of those illusions, and that's just what I can see. And there's a whole load of other stuff there, uh, I'm sure. So then all the time, the teaching of the Lord was the basis of Paul's teaching. Now, this point here, Matthew 12:36, I think is picked up by Paul in Romans 14:12 when he says that each of one of us shall give account of himself to God. Whereas here, we're told... Uh, each of us shall give account of his words in the day of judgment. But Paul says we should give an account of himself. In other words, you are your words. Your essential self is your words. Words, therefore, are not just uh, little decorations. It's not just uh, a surface-level sin, as it were, to say, you know, hard words. But this is actually a reflection of you. So... Every idle word, well, the word means lazy or unproductive. And I think the idea is that words should be creative and are intended to be creative. And that's, I think, the first thing you, you learn when you open the Bible and you start reading uh, Genesis 1, the record of creation through a word. But this was the medium of creation. It was creation through a word. He said, and it was done, let there be light and there was light. And so that, that becomes a pattern for all our words. And every uncreative word, which is how I translate that Greek word that's translated here, idle, um, every unproductive word shall be judged. Uh, we shall give account thereof in the day of judgment. So then there is a real connection between words spoken in this life and the future day of judgment. James says we should speak as those who will be judged. In other words, there's a connection between what you speak and how you will be judged. Matthew 5:22. Whoever says to his brother, Raka, or you fool, is in real danger of hellfire. In other words, there's a connection between calling a guy those, those terms and the condemnation process of the last day. 
the tongue, James 3, has the power to cast a man into hellfire. There's this direct connection. Incidentally, when you read there in James 3, and he's in turn alluding to the Lord's words in Matthew 5, uh, about um, being thrown into the fire of destruction because of our words, do you know what that's quoting, or alluding very strongly, if not quoting, from the Septuagint in Daniel 7, verses 11 and 12, where you have the beast who is thrown into the fire of destruction because of his words. In other words, he's saying that, look at that quintessential kind of a symbol of evil in the Old Testament. And you know what? By your words, you associate yourself with that. You as a believer, you as one of God's people, associate yourself with that. Now that's the value of language and of, and of words. Jude 15 says that men will be condemned because of all their hard words that they have spoken. Really, we better be as soft as we can in our words because your hard words shall be quoted in the last day. And there's an example of this in Isaiah 65, which again is addressed to Israel, the ecclesia of, of the day. Uh, there were some self-righteous Jews who told their brethren, stand by yourself, come not near me, for I am holier than you. And God's comment was, this is written before me, I will recompense. The fact that those brethren said to others, look here, you're not up a scratch, you can't come near me, you stay over there, you know, you can't break bread, basically, you're out of fellowship, I am holier than you, God says, that is written before me and I will recompense against you. So there will be, as it were, a quoting back to us of our words of the Day of Judgment. These passages I've quoted, and I could quote a lot more. Uh, this is an absolutely major theme that becomes, I would say, a, a basis for, for our whole Christian understanding. It's got to take a serious grip on our lives. Not just... Oh, yeah, that stuff about the tongue. Yeah, James, yep, yeah, yeah. Oh, yes, it's got to control the tongue. Yeah. This becomes a, a fundamental, absolutely essential part of, of our living. So he says, every idle word, rima in the Greek, you, you shall give account. Logos. What does logos mean? John 1, the word was made flesh. In the beginning there was the word, the logos, the Intention, the idea, the purpose, etc. The explanation, we could say. So for every idle rima, for every idle word, you shall give a logos at the day of judgment. You shall explain that. Now how this in, let's say, mechanical terms works out, that at the day of judgment, I don't know. All one can say is that the meaning of time, I guess of space as well for that matter, uh, will be collapsed at the, uh, the process of judgment. But that's okay. The point is, then why about mechanics? In some sense, we will give an explanation of our lives, a logos of our words. As if words will be quoted back, and we must explain them. What was our intention? And we will give an account, a logos again, for our stewardship of the Lord's goods. Luke 16 verse 2 there will be a process of, of, of discussion. There's no, no question about that. So then, by our words, we therefore shall be justified 
uh, or condemned, and maybe the Lord has in mind Job 15, verse 6, your own mouth condemns you, and not I. Proverbs 18, 21, death and life are in the power of the tongue. Now, he says, by your words, 37, and this is the Greek word ek, that literally means out of your words you will be condemned. And the implication is that your words will be used as the basis for your condemnation. Not by your words so much as ek, out of your words. And I suggest you might have a look over at Luke 19, verse 22, where you have exactly the same uh, construction in the Greek. Where we read there, Luke 19, uh, 22, Out of your own mouth will I judge you. Ek. Ek. Out of your own mouth or words will I judge you. You, you reckon that I'm a hard man. Well, okay. I'll be a hard man to you. That's what you say. But when he says, out of your own mouth will I judge you, well, what did this, this one talent man say? didn't say anything. He thought. He thought. Uh, verse 21, he says, I, I feared you because you are an austere man. You take out what you laid not down and reap what you didn't sow. He didn't say that to anyone. That's what he thought inside his head. And the Lord said, ek, out of your own words. Well, the guy didn't say anything, but he thought it, and his thoughts are therefore his words. So then his own words are used as the basis of his judgment. And it's the same, of course, with, the, with Nathan when he comes to David and has it out with him about Bathsheba and Uriah. He, he uses David's own words you know, and says to him, just turns around and says, well, you are the man. So it would seem then that for the rejected, their words are quoted back to them as the basis of their condemnation. And if you figure that, let's work it through logically, think about these things, put meaning into the Lord's words here, he's surely saying, it is your words of condemnation of others which shall be used to condemn you. Of course, he said this, really, when he said in Matthew 7, if you judge, if you condemn, you shall be condemned. Symbolize. But here he's saying that it is actually, it will be the process, will be the quotation, the citation of your words to you, back to you. So brethren, really, we must be so careful not to condemn others. We really must be so careful not to, if we value at all our eternity. When I, I hear things that are said, and even worse, you read things that, that have been written and published... Yes, shake your head, because really some of this stuff is calling out for condemnation. And but the more you think about this, the, the more you don't just accept that and sort of tut-tut about it, but, but it just becomes incredibly sad that otherwise apparently good living people can condemn themselves in this way. But he says also, by your words you shall be justified. Now, I think then that, again putting meaning into the words, that is saying that it's by your justification of others, in words, that you shall be saved. And yet, there is this huge culture in which we live of nice speak, whereby it is all important how you say something. And uh, I don't know about you, but I'm sick and tired of that. But it is more important 
how you say something than the actual content of, of what you're really saying. And that this is a false distinction that has arisen with the, uh, the, the change communication pattern that we've had in the last 20, 30 years, whereby now everything is email or online or by text messages or, you know, social networking or whatever. But the choice of words never before has been so significant. And this has encouraged, as I say, this picture of nice speak, whereby it's important what you say. You can hate someone's guts in your heart, but that's all right. Uh, just use the right words, please. And <laughs> the Lord is cutting right through all that and saying, no, in the end, I see your words as your thoughts. And even if you manage to think you're clever enough to make a distinction between thought and word, that doesn't hold any water with the Lord Jesus. And that needs to be borne in mind. I'm not saying, of course, if you feel mad with someone where you just walk up and cuss them kind of thing to their face. No, I'm not. Um, although I would say, when you look at the the uh, imprecatory psalms of David, where he, he talks in such rough language about his enemies sometimes that you, you almost despaired of him, um, I, I wonder why he does that in prayers to God, but I suspect that his thought was, look here, God knows my thoughts uh, inside out, my thoughts are my words, and David, of all men, I think really understands that, he shows his understanding of that in the Psalms. So he's saying, well, this is how I feel, Lord, this is what's in my heart, so I'll say it to you in so many words, I even write it down as a psalm, because that's how I feel, and you know, I'm not going to draw a... Uh, a parallel, a, 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 a mask over my, my thoughts. I'm not going to say that my thoughts and my words are, are so separate, because they're not. That's one window, I would say, onto some of his quite extreme language that he uses. He's just actually being honest about his inner thoughts. And yet he, he says here, by your words you shall be justified. Well, how do you cope with that in, in the light of Romans 1 to 8 that talks about being justified by faith and grace and that it's not of works and in that sense of clever words either. Well, that isn't all that Romans 1 to 8 says. You've got to read that as a unit. And I think what he's saying is that there's two statuses. You can either be in Christ or not. And if you are in Christ, then you are counted as him. You are counted as sinless, spotless, etc. Uh, but in connection with that, you've got to live that, uh, live out that status in practice. And this is where his whole teaching about the Spirit is in that context. And he talks about the Spirit as a power that works within, within the human spirit, the human mind. Uh, to make our mind, and therefore the rest of our lives, similar or in line with the status which God has now imputed to us. So it's not that just God imputes righteousness and, okay, yeah, you're good now, see you later, but the transaction is done. This is why the whole language of the Spirit and the Spirit's work is part and parcel of the whole argument about justification and about uh, being imputed to be righteous and having righteousness imputed to you. It doesn't stop there. It's not just that you change status and God sees you in that way. Yes, that is true, but it's further than that. God works through his spirit in the inner man, as Paul later says, in order to make you, in practice, who you are in status before him.
and talk about that maybe afterwards, uh, about this idea of being justified by your words versus being justified by, by grace through faith. Okay, verse 38, but then some others came to him, and they said, we want to see a sign from you. And I think there's a key bit of information in the parallel record in Luke 11:16. we want to see a sign from heaven. In other words, they're continuing the blasphemy. They're saying, yeah, we don't doubt doing miracles, but we reckon this is from Satan, and we want to see from God. We want to see a sign from God. It's not wrong to ask for a sign. I mean, Gideon did in a sense, the disciples did in Matthew 24, and the Olivet Prophecy and the Lord, you know, gives them their signs. Uh, but he says, look, an adulterous generation, 39, seeks after a sign. And I think that's uh, not just a reference to their sexual immorality. I think it is an allusion to them being the unfaithful wife of, of Yahweh in, in, in terms of Hosea, etc., and he says, no sign shall be given. And I think you have to read in an ellipsis there when he's saying that uh, no further sign, I would say, no more signs will be given. And it's rather like uh, Exodus 4 verse 9 uh, where the Egyptians didn't believe the signs that were given them and that led to their final destruction. And so the Lord is saying that Israel, Israel's religious leadership and all their apparent righteousness He's saying, you just like the Egyptians, you are the adulterous wife of Yahweh. This is very tough language. And he says, you're going to get no more sign now apart from uh, Jonah, who was three days and three nights uh, inside the fish, just as the Lord was to be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. Now, the sign of Jonah, in what sense was Jonah a sign to the Ninevites? Well, it was because he preached to them. And so Jesus is saying, well, I'm going to be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth, and then I'm going to preach to you. But when Jesus rose from the dead, he only appeared to the disciples. He didn't stand up in Jerusalem and say, guys, hello Israel, here I am, I'm back here. No, they didn't see him. Only the disciples did. And who stood up in front of Israel and Jerusalem and so forth and witnessed to them? It was not Jesus personally, it was the body of Christ in the sense of the disciples. So then his resurrection uh, was like Jonah coming out of the fish. His personal preaching to the world was not by him, but through us, through the body of Christ. And that's why in all your witness, in all your just changing the direction of a conversation, and raising the things of the Lord Jesus in, in secular life, He's absolutely with you, because you are him to this world. So be encouraged to do that. But think of Jonah as the sign. He'd been absolutely disobedient to God. And when he came out of the, the fish after three days inside it, it's quite likely that his body was sort of bleached, that he, or the acid inside the fish, he would have looked very strange. And of course, people would have said, who are you? How would you come to be here? Why you look so funny? And he, well, it's not recorded, he would have told them the whole story. I mean, if some guy turned up on the edge of town in Nineveh and said, guys, you're all going to be destroyed, they'd have been like, yeah, well, yeah, yeah, right. Why did they repent? Why was there this incredible repentance in Nineveh? 
It was because of Jonah. He didn't stand there in a disinterested kind of way saying, oh, by the way, guys, you're going to be destroyed in 40 days. You know, they, like, locked him up in the, in the funny farm uh, or uh, probably just ignored him. There was something in him that was compelling. And what was, why? What was it? It was because he could say, guys, you know what? I'm a servant of God. I'm a Jew. But I disobeyed the God of Israel. And you know what happened to me? And this strange story that, you know, I got swallowed by a fish. And, uh, you know, here I am. He spat me out on, a, on, the, on the beach and blah, blah. Um, all this was so compelling. It had the, the ring of truth to it. I'm sure you, like me, you've met someone who tells you a story that you think, wow, that's such a strange story. No one would ever believe that. But I do believe it. Because there's something about the guys telling me the story that somehow, internally, it seems to hang together. It has the ring of truth to it. And I think that's what people thought about him. And so, this is the basis of compelling witness to this world. To witness about your own sin and failure. And God's grace and kindness and gentleness to you. That is what compels people. That is what stops people dead in their tracks and makes them make a radical change. But there's something in you that has the ring of truth and credibility to it. Rather than, as I say, standing on the edge of town saying, yeah, guys, you're going to be destroyed in 40 days. Like, yeah, as if. You know. um, there was something compelling about it. And the Lord is saying that the, as it were, resurrected Jonah standing there in Nineveh with all his weakness and his tale of, incredible tale of God's grace to him, he's saying well, that, in a sense, is me after my resurrection. But it's not going to be me personally. It's blokes like Peter, you know, uh, etc. I mean, that's why. Who was the, the vehicle through which God did and the Lord Jesus did particularly work to get thousands of people baptized? It was not actually the twelve, it was one man, and it was Peter who went and stood up and did that, what, hardly a stone's throw from the very place where he had denied his Lord. And if you look at his speech, you'll see it shot through with allusion to the record of his own denials. Then he says, verse 41, The men of Nineveh shall rise in judgment with this generation and shall condemn it. Well, it's easy to think he's talking about resurrection, and he might be, I'm not saying he isn't. But I would think that the allusion, rather, is to how a judge stands up. To how a judge stands up and reads the verdict, in this case, of condemnation. So he's saying that those men, and the, the Queen of Sheba, 42, are going to stand up in the judgment on the last day and will condemn you. Now, this is not the only time when you get this theme of the judgment being a, a kind of a public process and other people being involved in that judgment and you being judged, therefore, according to how other people responded. You know, you had the, the gospel dished up to you on a plate and you didn't want it. Some other guy, do you realize this guy struggled all his life to find Christ, found him, and committed himself to him for the last part of his life. And you, for example, you, know, you grew up knowing all these things and you, you didn't want it. Yeah? Uh, and so that's why you've got stuff like Malachi 3 and 4, that um, the, 
the righteous will tread down the wicked in the day of judgment as ashes under the soles of their feet. We will judge angels, I suspect is the same idea, 1 Corinthians 6.3. That the folly of the rejected will be made manifest unto all men, 2 Timothy 3.9. So it seems to me that there is a public element to judgment, whereby, for example, the Queen of Sheba, look, she came from the uttermost end of the, uh, the earth, as in the land promised to Abraham, to find God's truth at the lips of Solomon, and the implication is that she repented. Um, and yet you Jews who knew it all from childhood, who studied the scriptures all day long, poured over every letter uh, and every word of the text, you didn't get it, did you? But these other people did. And therefore they shall be your judges. And this actually is quite a big theme in, in Ezekiel particularly, uh, talking about how... Uh, Israel will be judged so that the Gentile nations might know Yahweh. There is uh, an economy in all that God does. Uh, and even the, the work of condemnation is a witness of his glory and will bring others to him. That's, that's a very beautiful thing, really. Now, he says... Uh, this gener uh, they will condemn this generation. And he says that, uh, 42, uh, that they repented, the men of Nineveh repented of the preaching of Jonah. The implication is, but you didn't. And there's a bit of a similarity, suddenly in Hebrew and Greek, between Jonah and John. And what message did John preach? He preached repentance. So I think the Lord is saying, hinting, they repented, but you didn't. And yet, they all went out of Jerusalem to listen to John. And they thought he was great. They loved the hard line. But Jesus is saying, you didn't really repent. Now, this is the whole thing, isn't it? That in all spirituality, there can be the real thing, the real repentance in this case, and an appearance of repentance, just like classic one is love and forgiveness. Uh, there can be an appearance of love and forgiveness when there is not. There can be uh, an appearance of fellowship, of faith, of peace, of joy, when there is not. And it's the same with repentance. There is kind of a, a pseudo, an anti-thing, uh, uh, that, that, that is uh, sort of a, a fake. And this is so in this case of repentance, that... You didn't repent, he's saying, when the big message of John was repentance, and they were sure they had. And he continues that theme, I think, about John, when he says, verse 43, When the unclean spirit has gone out of a man, he walks through dry places, seeking rest, and finds none. And then he returns into the house, and whence he came out. And when he's come, he finds it empty, swept, and garnished. And then he takes more evil spirits with him. And the last state of that man is worse than the first, verse 45. Now that is again continuing this theme about John. That John, as it were, uh, sent the evil spirit out. Uh, and first of all, he goes through dry places, through the desert places. Well, John was preaching out in the desert, was he not? Uh, seeking rest. Well, Jesus said, come unto me, Matthew eleven twenty eight, the same word, and I will give you rest. 
So after their encounter with John, he set them up to seek for Jesus, who was offering them rest. They were looking for rest, but they didn't want it. And then he says, I will return into my house, but the house has been swept. It's the very same word in Luke 15, verse 8, about the woman who sweeps her house in order to find the lost. Now the woman, I say, I suggest in that parable, is Jesus. He sweeps the house to find the lost. The lost amongst Israel. And so, you know, the house that has been swept, this is Luke 15, verse 8, absolutely. This is the work of Jesus, uh, but they, they don't want it. So then, the last state of that man, the eschatos state, the eschatological state of that man, the state of that man of the, of the day of judgment, is uh, worse than it was at the first. While he yet talked to the people, behold, his mother and his brother stood without, verse 46. Now, Five times between 46 and 50 in, the, in this, uh, this chapter 12, five times you read that phrase, his mother and his brethren. It's, uh, it's a sad thing really that it seems to me that Mary here is in midlife crisis and she's connected clearly with his brethren and John 7, 5, his brethren did not believe in him. Now, in the parallel in Mark 3, you read that his own family, that's his mother and his brethren, as they're called here, uh, decide that he is crazy, that he is beside himself, the AV says. And uh, he's been talking just now about unclean spirits, and earlier they have said that uh, he is demon-possessed, earlier in this chapter. They have said that the Jews considered that Jesus was crazy because he was demon-possessed. And... Unfortunately, I think that Mary and his brethren came to see Jesus as the world, the Jewish world around them, saw Jesus. And it's unfortunate, really, that, um, verse 46, they stand, that the, the, the phrase is used, they stood without. Because unfortunately, this is the term that Jesus elsewhere uses about the rejected who shall be without, who stand without knocking and the door is not opened. Now I'm not saying that they will not be in the kingdom, of course not. Um, his brothers did later believe in him and it seems Mary did as well. And so I'm just saying that at this point in, 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 the, in the ministry I think there was a crisis in Mary. And really, when you, when you think about it, it, that would make sense, because, you know, she starts off with this great desire to, to be the mother of Messiah as a teenager, it seems to me, and then she's barefoot and pregnant, this very, very full of God's word, very intensely spiritual, just a baby, and then she has other kids, and, you know, no money, hard times, and the rest of it, um, and people would have just assumed that Jesus was the result of some fling that she had when she was younger. Um, and, and that's, uh, you know, really what they thought of him. When he stands up and says, guys, I'm, I'm Messiah, basically, by implication, when he's 30 years old, they say, you can't be. We know you, 
you, we know your mother and <coughs> father, let's say, um, and uh, your brothers and sisters, they all live here in the town. We know who you are. Uh, you're nothing, nothing just but an ordinary guy. And that, incidentally, I think is a beautiful window into the level of his perfection. That he who never sinned, he who never omitted an act of righteousness, or never uh, did anything wrong and was committing righteousness all the time, he did that for 30 years, living in the same little village, really, and nobody noticed, and nobody thought he was anything special. When he says, basically, guys, I'm the son of God, they're like, what? Of course you're not. That's beautiful, but that's just in passing. My point is that because he looked so ordinary, because he seemed so ordinary, uh, people just thought that he was just who he looked to be, you know, Mary, the result of Mary's kind of fling when she was younger. And so Mary herself came to see Jesus in the way that the world saw him. That is my point. That just as we've seen here, that as the rest of them thought that Jesus was uh, crazy, had an unclean spirit, so she and her uh, other children also think the same about him. And he really, it, it must have broken her heart, really, when he, he says, look, my mother and my brothers uh, are these who do the will of God. And he stretched forth his hand, 49, and I think that his body language was remembered by the disciples because they all seemed to recall this. He stretched forth his hand, uh, epi, like over, uh, toward or over really his disciples, and he says, look, my mother and my brethren. And Mary would have looked at those other Marys and thought, Jesus, you want those women as your mothers? Don't you get it, Jesus? Those women are whores. You know? They're, they're prostitutes. And I'm a you know, good-living woman who kept my life together, and, and you want them? It's incredibly painful, the whole relationship between the Lord and his mother. And of course, it comes to its, its final term, really, um, on the cross, when he, he kind of uh, gently disowns her, when he sort of says, you know, this John, you know, he says, behold your son. He's not saying, mum, hey, look at me. He's sort of nodding with his head, as I see it, towards John. And he says to John, behold your mother. So the, the, the point of the, the, the painful relationship between the Lord and his mother, which is particularly acute here, I think is, is to show us that we must not be influenced in our view of the Lord Jesus by the view of the world around us. In whatever view they may have or not have of him, that is not the case. We have this personal relationship with him, which although it might seem scarcely credible, we know is the ultimate truth of, of human existence. Thank you.